Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. When cultures clash, the results can be pretty alarming. A simple misunderstanding can result in a bitter feud between two people or even two countries. Or one culture's customs can become too much for another to bear. Wars may be sparked, lives may be lost, and nations may be overthrown. But for one king and queen, the outcome of their miscommunication was a bit more, uh, complicated. It started in the city of Calabar, Nigeria, during the 1800s. The epic people who lived there had been quite active in the transatlantic slave trade of the 17th century. They often acted as facilitators, capturing people from other communities and selling them to the British. The epic also helped load their kidnapped neighbors onto the ships and provided travelers with food if necessary. It wasn't uncommon for epic families to have European captains teach their children English or the ins and outs of the slave trade. For their efforts, the Epic were given many items from Europe, which they enjoyed. They began adopting various aspects of British culture, including their clothing and Western-sounding names, often as a way to endear themselves to the foreigners. As missionaries moved throughout the towns and villages, Christianity became a dominant religion among the Epic as well. In 1808, the transatlantic slave trade officially came to an end, at least on paper. A British law was enacted prohibiting the practice in many British territories, yet it persisted in others, oftentimes illegally. And sitting at the top of it all on the English side was none other than Her Majesty herself, Queen Victoria. She knew how important trade with Africa was, though she had no intention of continuing slavery. She did, however, need the other things Calabar could provide, such as palm oil, ivory, and rubber. To keep the lines of commerce open, Victoria wrote directly to King Ayemba of Calabar, also known as Obang of Calabar. She promised him and his people more gifts, as well as protection in case someone found out about their deal. Victoria oversaw the British Empire of the time. It was an era of expansion and conquest, and so the title Queen of England was nothing to sneeze at. In fact, she signed all of her letters to King Ayemba that way. Queen Victoria, the Queen of England. But when the king's interpreter read her letters aloud, he didn't quite get her title right. Rather than announce her as the Queen of England, he instead called her the Queen of All White Men. To say the king was surprised would have been an understatement. He believed that it wasn't right for him to accept such incentives from a woman he wasn't married to. So he told his scribe to write back to her with a marriage proposal. Together, they would conquer the world. He signed it, King Ayamba, the King of All Black Men. That was sure to get her attention. Well, she received his letter and wrote back saying as much. She was happy the king was still interested in maintaining a business relationship with her. Along with her response, Victoria also sent over some gifts for him, including a sword, a royal cape, and a Bible. Yet, she never said she would join him on the throne as his queen. King Ayemba didn't care. He took the gifts as acceptance of his proposal and had another throne placed beside his— a seat fit for the Queen of England. Their correspondence didn't stop after that either. She continued to send more gifts while he made sure that her country got the palm oil it deserved. 
And though the queen never traveled to Calabar to become his wife, a tradition was started to honor their relationship, a tradition that has continued to this day. Today, when a new king is crowned there, a second throne is placed next to his own, upon which is placed a Bible. The Obong's wife, the one he is actually married to, occupies a seat behind him. A second coronation ceremony takes place in a Presbyterian church, where the Obong dons the English cape and crown before sitting upon his throne, waiting for his queen to come and take her rightful place beside him. Do you ever feel like there aren't enough hours in the day to get everything done? Our to-do lists get longer, but the days never seem to keep up. If anything, they're getting shorter. If only there was some way to add more time to the clock, to bend it to our wills. Well, one man figured out how to do just that, and it was easy to literally make time when you were the king. Edward VII, eldest son of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, was born at Buckingham Palace on November 9th of 1841. As a child, Edward was raised in a way that would prepare him for his ascent to the throne later in life. There was a strong focus on his education, thanks to his father, who made sure Edward had the best tutors. Unfortunately, the young prince didn't have a mind for schoolwork. He did, however, have a knack for socializing and schmoozing, which he did while studying abroad when he got older. From the age of 18, Edward spent much of his time in Rome, Edinburgh, and in 1860, he became the first Prince of Wales to tour North America. His trip there was a great success. He visited Niagara Falls and spent several days at the White House with President James Buchanan. Buchanan then escorted Edward to Mount Vernon, where both men visited Washington's tomb to pay their respects. Two years later, after a lengthy trip to the Middle East, Edward returned to England and got engaged to Alexandra of Denmark. The couple was married one year later. They spent most of their time as newlyweds in London at a mansion known as the Marlborough House. But when they wanted to get away, they jettied off to Norfolk along the English coast to a 20,000-acre estate called Sandringham. Edward had purchased Sandringham for the princely sum of £220,000. The house underwent so many changes, it was practically rebuilt from the ground up. The main hall was torn down, and a newer, much larger hall was built in its place. However, Edward often found the size lacking, and he had new rooms and wings added over the years. Yet, despite his displeasure with Sandringham's magnitude, it allowed him to indulge in one of his greatest passions, hunting. On his travels to Nepal when he was younger, for example, he would mount an elephant and ride into the jungles to hunt tigers and rhinos. Back in Sandringham, the game was less intense. Edward hunted mostly birds. His head keeper, Jackson, was responsible for maintaining the grounds and knowing the hunting schedule in order to provide his employer with optimal hunting conditions. Jackson's job was to make sure that groundskeeping staff never worked the land in the days leading up to a hunt, so as to avoid upsetting the game. On the day of the event, Edward would mount a brown cob, or strong, short-legged horse, and traverse the terrain. With red and blue flags in his hand, he instructed his men, called beaters, to corral the animals toward the route, directly in the path of his rifle. Edward often hunted at Sandringham during the late fall and winter months, but there was just one problem with that. The sun didn't stay out as long as he liked in the winter, which meant that there was less time to shoot. 
Of course, he was Edward VII, King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and the British Dominions. If he wanted the sun to hang in the sky a little longer, he was going to get it. And he did. You see, Edward had all the clocks at Sandringham moved half an hour ahead of Greenwich Mean Time. The result was an extra half hour of daylight with which to hunt. The rest of England measured their days one way, while at Sandringham, the sun sets whenever the king decided it so. The phenomenon even got its own name, Sandringham Time, and it was a tradition that carried on until Edward VII's death in 1910. His successor, Edward VIII, hated the confusion that it caused, and so he refused to let it continue during his reign. Unusual? You bet. But that's just the sort of thing that makes this world curious. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.